There we go. Okay. Welcome back. I scared a few, scared a few away, I guess, with my lecture on Thursday. I had two, two drops, so it's not that bad. Um, and a couple more look like they may not have shown up. 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, I got 19, and we're supposed to have 22 right now, so we're missing three. But we'll see what, see what happens. It looks like everybody did sign, did sign in, so we should be good there. Let me mark that. Got everybody there. Okay, and we have our picture of the day for the day. As I said, this is what I'm going to start off with each day. I never know what it's going to be until that morning, so we'll, it's always a surprise. Sometimes it's something very interesting. Sometimes it doesn't really apply at all, but we try to, I try to make it work as best I can. But this is actually a nebula, something we will study, talk about later in this course. Uh, nebula is a cloud of gas and dust in space, and that's what you're seeing here. And this one is called the Witch Head Nebula. Can you see the Witch Head in it? You don't always see all that stuff. is not really the most amazing. These are not, you know, of course it's not made to look like that. It's what people have happened to have seen it as. The only way I can pick that out is maybe you've got, your, you've got a witch looking down with a big pointy nose and a mouth. Maybe. So if you're sort of looking at it that way. Eh, I know. It's a stretch, but what can you, what can you say? Astronomers have very vivid imaginations. So, you know, everybody else will come and else will look at it and see something completely different, different on it. The names like that are used are the popular names. Astronomers tend to use catalog names. So this also has a name IC2118, which is a little less interesting than the Witch Head <laughs> Nebula and probably a little less memorable, memorable as well. So those are the popular names that you know, astro some astronomers and amateur astronomers will use referring to the nebula. What this is, this is actually a nebula in the constellation of Orion, which is one that's visible pretty easily right now. It's a nice winter constellation, so we can see that in the evening sky right now. And the nebulae are essentially, again, clouds of gas and dust in space. So this is an area of the sky where stars are forming. And this is some of the material that's left over from where stars had formed around the constellation of Orion. Now, if you can tell a little bit, it has a little bit of a colored tinge to it. It looks a little bluish, maybe. See a little bit of a bluish tinge? This is called a reflection nebula, and they are blue because they are reflecting the light of some very hot blue stars that are actually not visible on this picture. Down below this picture is the bright star Rigel in Orion. And it's a very blue star, and this nebula, the dust in it, is actually reflecting that blue light from that star and reflecting it to us. So that's why the nebula appears blue. We'll see some other types of nebulae that actually look red depending on, not because of specific stars or light that they're reflecting, but because of their composition and what they're made up of. Don't forget to sign in so I get you. Okay, so to pick, you also saw something about the composition too. In this case, the nebula looks blue because it's reflecting the starlight. And that's the same thing that happens here on Earth with the sky. When you look at the sun at the sunset, what color does it look? Anyone, anyone? Red. Looks like a reddish orange, right? It, not, not like it looks when, during the middle of the day. It looks completely different. It's not changing color. The sun is still the same. The difference is it's going through a lot of atmosphere. That sunlight has to pass through a lot of atmosphere. And when it passes through a lot of atmosphere, it scatters out all the blue light. Blue light gets scattered very easily. So the blue light gets scattered all over the sky and comes from all sorts of directions, giving us a blue sky. So our sky looks blue because of that. And the sun, all the blue light was taken out of it, so it looks much redder. So sun's at the same thing effect that's going on here is the same thing that happens every day 
on, on Earth with the sunset or the sunrise. Same thing. You're looking through a lot of atmosphere and all the blue light gets scattered. Blue light gets scattered very, very efficiently. So that's what we're seeing here. This, this dust in this cloud is actually scattering the blue light and we're seeing it and red light is actually just passing through it and traveling off into, into space. So I'm sure we'll see a number of other pictures of nebulae. Again, this is one. Orion is a very, very prominent one. There's a lot of star formation, a lot of very young stars in that section of the sky. So a lot of areas where stars are currently forming. And that's something we'll be talking about late, later in the course. So questions before we jump on and actually start the first chapter? No? No? OK. Let's start chapter zero then. And yes, your textbook, as I think I mentioned last time, does start with chapter zero. Now these slides are up and available on D2L, so you actually can get them and print them out if you want to follow along that way. I will have them up and actually a new set opens up each week. So actually if you go in there and look on D2L now, I just set it up at the beginning to start one lesson each week. So right now you can actually get chapter zero and chapter one slides if you want and hopefully that'll keep you ahead so you're not getting to the point where I'm lecturing ahead and the slides haven't been made available. But again, chapter zero is a very quick summary chapter in this textbook and it goes, does go over a lot of material and a lot of very interesting material that it kind of, it rushes through I think. So there's a lot of good material here, talks about, we talk about eclipses and things that you could spend a little bit more time on, but we've got a lot of other material to get to in the course. So, But charting the heavens is just basically looking at what the sky looks like. And there's a, another picture here, just a more pretty scenery picture. And almost looks like daylight, right? Looks like a daylight picture except that you can see the stars there. You can actually, some of these exposures, if you take them for a long enough time, and we see some of these on our pictures of the day as well, you can take a long enough exposure and by moonlight and you can get things that look almost, looks almost like daylight. But if the moon was illuminating from another direction, you may actually be illuminating the ground by moonlight and you can actually get quite significant uh, brightness just from the moon there, especially when you take things over a period of time. But what we're going to look at, some of the things in this chapter, are just some of the basics and some of the basic things that we see, you know, how do the things in the sky appear to move to us on Earth? That's sort of what we're going to talk about in this chapter. And in fact, the outline here, first of all, you get an outline at the beginning of each chapter. Obvious, first of all, what are the obvious things that we see? The sun goes around the Earth, right? No. But it looks like it does. If we just sit here on Earth, I mean, is it really a bad thing that, you know, people 3,000 years ago thought that the sun moved around the Earth? Not really. I mean, it, it does. You stand there. We're not moving. We don't feel like we're moving. Not like you're on a horse when you can feel the wind blowing by you. Or in a vehicle nowadays, you know, you don't feel, you don't feel the motion. So we're going to look at a couple of things like that. And then talk about what we really do know. What about the Earth's, or, the Earth's orbital motion? And then spend a good amount of time on the moon. Now, this is not the details about the moon. We'll come back to the moon a little bit. We'll talk about the moon a little bit in a later chapter and there'll be a lot more detail in it in the Astronomy 103, the planetary course. This is more talking about what do we see. So when you look at the moon over the course of a few nights, what do you see changing? You see the shape of it, right? Sometimes you see a real thin crescent moon, real thin moon. Sometimes you see a nice big thick or full moon. 
And how does that kind of thing work? We'll talk about that. And then we'll come back at the end of this chapter and talk about measuring distances. Now this is the beginning of this of a unit that will go on for most of the course. Distances are one of the are very one of the one of the more difficult things to determine in astronomy. It's very difficult to figure out how far away something is. You know, can't take a tape measure there. Can't drive there, can't fly there in a speed. You know, there's no way to get a good measurement of distance. We have to find other ways to get distance. And I'm going to show you at this time the first way of getting a distance, the first way possible way of measuring that, that works for only some of the very closest objects. And then we'll find out as we go progress through this course how we build up a ladder to determine distances. So we start with one very short rung that we can use for closer objects. Then we build up and we get more steps and they have to build on each other. It works. It allows us to determine distances to the most distant galaxies. But it, each one depends on the step before it. So if you've got errors in earlier steps, it's a progression and you can make big errors based on that. And then finally, we'll sum up just a little bit about science and the scientific method. If you've taken another science course, you've probably seen that. I think almost every science course goes through that in some, at some point or another. So, first of all, what about the Earth? Well, a long time ago it was thought that we were special, that you know, the Earth was the center of everything. Not necessarily, again, not necessarily a bad thought because that is the way everything looks. If you're standing here on Earth and you, you, know, you were living thousands of years ago, it sure looks like everything is revolving around you. Right? You know, the stars, you're not moving around the stars, you're not moving, there's no intuitive feeling that you're actually moving. You know, it looks like everything else is revolving around us. Now we know now that we don't occupy any special place in the universe. You know, we're one planet, you know, one of eight planets around the sun, which is one of hundreds of millions of, or billions of stars in the galaxy, which is one of many of hundreds of billions of galaxies, and we're not in any special place. But again, going back, not necessarily thinking that was, was not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's not that people were stupid, it's certain, that's what was obvious at the time. And they didn't have some of the technology that we have today. What is the universe? We'll come back to the universe at the end, end of the course. We'll talk about the entire universe. We'll go through the origin and what's gonna ha what might happen to the universe. But the universe is essentially everything. So. All space, all time, all matter, all energy, everything, everything that exists is the universe. That's what we mean when we say universe, we talk about everything, and astronomy is the study of that. So astronomy is essentially the study of everything. Of course, we eliminate certain, you know, unimportant things, like we really don't talk much about the Earth. And in fact, in this course, when we get to our little section on the planets, I kind of breeze through the Earth because there's other classes that cover that in more detail. But astronomy studies everything else out there. All the stars, the nebulae that we saw earlier, the planets, and, and beyond, the galaxies and the, the clusters of the galaxies. The difficulty with astronomy is that distances get so very large. You've sort of got a little scale here, jumping up real quick to universe, but you know, there's a couple people looking at a comet. Okay, we've got a nice beautiful comet visible right now, if you happen to live south of the equator. Sorry. Doesn't work up here. Can't, can't plan those to work for the class. But, you know, there's, there's some people looking at a comet. That's something we can understand. That's a size scale we can comprehend. At least I can. Size of the Earth, yeah, that gets a lot harder. 
I mean, we know there's the Earth, we know it's big, but can you really imagine how big the Earth is? I mean, most people really haven't made a round-the-world trip. It's, it's big. But trying to get an idea of the scale of it and how many times bigger it is than what we're used to on an everyday basis is very difficult. And when you get up to the others, it's essentially impossible to really imagine those kinds of sizes. As you get to the Earth being one of the planets, the Sun with the planets being just a tiny part of our galaxy, you know, buried in there, but that box isn't even near to scale. You know, you need a little pinprick and it would be a tiny fraction of that. That would be where our Sun is compared to the galaxy on that scale. And then our galaxy and the galaxies around it are just one of many galaxies in the universe. So there's a lot, there's a lot out there and we're just one little tiny piece, tiny piece of it. When we talk about distances, we'll talk about a couple different units for measurement. One of the big ones is called the light year. A light year is how far light travels in one year, about 10 trillion miles, which everybody knows, right? You know how big 10 trillion miles is? 10 miles, okay, you understand 10 miles. 10 trillion miles, that's very big. Let's put it a little bit more into perspective. How far away that is, the sun got a little bit better idea. Okay, the sun's relatively close to us in the universe. The sun takes about eight and a half minutes for the light to get to us. So it takes about eight and a half minutes for light to get from the sun to us. That's about 93 million miles. Million, billion, then trillion. There's a lot more zeros there going out to the trillion. In fact, even to go one light year, we haven't even gotten to the nearest star. The nearest, other than the sun, yep, sun's closer than one light year, it's only eight light minutes away. The nearest star is four and a half light years away. So 40 trillion miles. You see why we use things like light years. If I start saying 40 trillion miles, you're, you're already gone, right? You don't have any idea, you know. But when you talk about four light years, at least the number you can comprehend. Four, we know what four is, right? We can understand that. 40 trillion, I have no clue. I can't imagine 40 trillion miles. But that's what we'll say, and we'll talk about light years. The other thing that means in terms of distances is that when we look at things, we don't see them as they are today. So when we look out at the sky, you're seeing it, you're seeing history. You're looking back at what it was like a long time ago. When we look at the sun, go out on a clear day and look at the sun, that's not how it looks right now. That's how it looked eight minutes ago when this light left us, because it takes the light that much time to travel to us. With stars, it's even worse. When we look at the Alpha Centauri, the closest star to us, a little over four light years away. Well, that means it's 2012 now, we're seeing it as it looked at the end of 2007. That's when that light that's leaving us now. So if it blew up, you know, two years ago, we've still got two years before we even know about it. No, that won't happen from our understanding. Alpha Centauri is not the type of star that would blow up in this big explosion. But we still wouldn't know. It could disappear right now. Four, four and a half years from now, we'd see it disappear. It gets further out you get in space, the bigger that gets. The Andromeda galaxy is one of the nearest galaxies to us. It's two million light years away. So we see as it was you know, long before human civilization of any kind. Two million years ago. What does it look like today? Wait two million years and we'll find out. You know, we have no clue right now. It takes that long for the light to travel to us. 
You get to the edges of the universe, you're talking billions of years. So you can see things, we can see things now, we can look at some very distant objects and see them as they were before the Earth even formed. So time and scales are very, very large. There's a lot of big distances and times that we talk about in this course as we go through. So to keep that in mind, when you go out there and look at everything, you're seeing all those stars and you're seeing each of them at a different time frame essentially. You know, one you might be seeing as it, was seven, as it was 700 years ago. One might be 15 years ago. One might be 1,000 years ago. Just depending on how far away they are. Okay. And what we see, you go, you go out there and look at everything. When you look at the sky, it looks like it's a nice big sphere. Now that's what the ancients thought. There was this great big sphere and all the stars were stuck to it. Or all the stars were little pinpricks in the great celestial sphere, you know, hiding the heavens which was very, very big and bright, and that was just that, that was there. Everything looks like it's at the same distance. Now, you might vaguely recognize this constellation. It's one of the ones that people can actually pick out usually. That's Orion. You know, a big bright box, four stars here and then three stars in the belt. That's one that's very prominently visible in the evening sky right now. But we don't see that three-dimensional view. When you look out at the sky, it looks like they're all the same distance, right? I mean, it looks like a big, big sphere. But in reality, when we actually measure distances and we learn how to tell you how to do that, we find out that certain stars, this red one here is the bright, one of the brightest stars in Orion, Betelgeuse, is actually relatively close. Some of these stars in the belt of Orion are actually several times further away. Rigel, the one I mentioned earlier, is this one right here. And it's located, you know, somewhere in between. So even though they're all at very big distances, it's just our projection that we see it from where we happen to be located. And that does mean that, you know, contrary to all the science fiction movies that like to use constellations or refer to constellations, and you know, you're in Orion, you're in this, there is no being in Orion. If we traveled out, if you happen to live on one of these, you happen to live out here, well, half the stars in Orion would be to one side of the sky for you, half the stars would be on the other side. It's only the projection of where we happen to be. If you went someplace else, you'd get a completely different pattern of constellations. It's just where we happen to be, what, what patterns we happen to see. So it depends on exactly where you are. And again, the scale you're looking at there for Orion is about a thousand light years. So many of the stars in Orion, we see them as they were a thousand years ago. We were just looking at one relatively close to Rigel. There it is right there. Maybe about 800 light years away. Plus or minus, I'm just estimating off of that. So that picture we saw today, again, was what that nebula looked like 800 years ago. So in the year around 1212 instead of 2012. But again, that's what we see. We see everything as being, being on a celestial sphere, and that's what we tend to use. Because that's the way everything looks. We know it's not correct. We know it's really three-dimensional. But it's much easier to do this because this is the way everything looks. And what we have is what we call the celestial sphere is just the sphere of the stars. So when you look out at night, you're seeing what astronomers call the celestial sphere. And that's where all the stars appear to be located. And again, thousands of years ago, it was thought this was actually a big sphere out there. This is how things actually orbited the Earth. So the Earth sat there. The Earth, again, the Earth was not moving. 
There was no evidence that the Earth was moving. It was not thought that it was. It was just sitting there at the center, and this big sphere of stars rotated around it. Now, even though that's not correct, we still use this in order to determine distance, in order to determine positions on the sky. And in fact, you'll hear that in astronomers on Earth do use the constellations. We'll talk about stars as being in Gemini, or a galaxy in Gemini, or a galaxy in Sagittarius, or in Leo, or in one of the other constellations. We still use that as one of our methods of actually determining where constellations are, where, where the stars are. And the sky has now been divided up into 88 constellations. So there's a total of 88 constellations in the sky. Every spot on the sky is in one constellation or another. So you tend to think of constellations as this group of bright stars. You know, there's Lyra, the harp. Looks like a harp, yeah, I know. But there's, a, there's actually a bigger, the constellation itself is actually a block of the sky. And it's sort of like considering on, you know, considering in the US where, where the states are, right? You know, every part of the continental US is in one state or another. Whether there's people that live there or anything else, there's a border and you can t point. If you point, point to the map, you're going to either be in one state or another. You do the same thing with the sky. You're going to be in one of those 88 constellations. And we also use a coordinate system to do that. Now I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in this class, but we use something similar to latitude and longitude. So what you see is done here on this celestial sphere well, there's the Earth, and we know what our equator is, right? There's our equator right in the middle. There's our pole around which we rotate. If we extend those out to the sky, they cross the celestial sphere too. So where our North Pole hits the sky, if you were to imagine it extending out, is what we call the North Celestial Pole. And the star Polaris is, happens to be located there right now. So we have a relatively bright star there. We're lucky. If you live south of the equator, maybe you can see that comet right now, but you don't have a south pole star. There doesn't happen to be a star right now near the south celestial pole. So there is no pole star down there. So we're trying to figure out where the south celestial pole is a lot harder. Or you, and you can project the equator out. So you project the equator out, take the Earth's equator, project it out, and you have the celestial equator. And we measure coordinates. So astronomers can, do, can say that something is in the constellation of Virgo, sort of like we can stay something, you know, this, the point is in the state of Pennsylvania. And it's about as accurate, you know, it's about as accurate. You can try to narrow it down a little bit. They also use a set of coordinates. Now we use latitude and longitude. So I can specify exactly where in Pennsylvania we are, right? Your GPS will put there and tell you you're exactly at this location. Astronomers use two sets of coordinates. One north and south of the celestial equator and one around the celestial equator. And then you can def define any point, and you can tell exactly where an object is in the sky. So again, ways that we can use to determine distances in the sky. Distances in the sky. Now, when we look at the sky, I'm going to take a little side aside here and talk about angles, because you're going to hear a lot about angles in this course. Um, not a lot of details or calculations with them, but you're going to hear you're going to hear the terminology come back, and I want to make sure I mention mention that at the beginning. So, full circle, right? 360 degrees. Hopefully you remember that one. 360 degrees would be completely around the sky. That's a big angle. Even one degree is a very big angle on the sky. 
The moon's pretty big, right? Moon or the sun are pretty big. They're both about half a degree on the sky. So that means you could take the moon and take, take the full moon, it's 720 of them, make a big circle around the whole sky. So angles that we talk, and that's, that's a big object, right? Any other object you see in the sky, those stars are little tiny points. Anything else is significantly smaller. So we have to divide up that entire circle first into one degree, but then we not only go one degree, but we split that up into minutes and seconds. So each of those degrees gets split up into 60 pieces. So you take one degree here, there's one degree, there's 60, what we call, instead of minutes of time, they're actually arc minutes. So minutes, a degree measure of minute. And we measure, and you use those. So in that case, the moon and the sun would be 30 arc minutes. A little bit, little bit easier number to just keep track of type thing. But most of what we look at, when we look at a lot of things, we're looking at very, very small distances, and we've got to split that up in even more. So there was our one degree. That's one degree. You split that into 60 points and get one arc minute. Magnify that and imagine taking that arc minute and splitting it up, and you get one arc second. So 60 arc minutes in a 60 arc seconds in an arc minute, 60 arc minutes in a degree. So it makes it easy to remember because it's the same as time. You know, 60 minutes, 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour. Well, you have the same thing here. You have 60 arc seconds in one arc minute, 60 arc minutes in one degree. And again, you'll just see that terminology. You'll see things we'll talk, mention arc minutes or arc seconds, just to give you an idea of how tiny they are. Again, the entire moon is 30 arc minutes across. So very, very small angles. Some of the objects that we measure in the sky, some of the stars, we want to measure their motions. I talked about distances, and I'll come back to this at the end of this chapter. We measure distances by how the stars move. And when we measure those movements, the further a star is, the more it appears to move, just as we go around the sun. Again, I'll go through this in a little bit more detail later. The angle that we're measuring for even the closest stars is actually less than one second of arc. So one three thousand six hundredth of a degree or one eighteen hundredth of the size of the full moon is what astronomers have to measure in order to determine distances to the nearest stars. More distant stars, we're measuring even smaller angles. So we have to measure incredibly tiny angles in order to determine things like distances and motions in the sky. Okay. So again, you're just going to see that terminology come back. I wanted to make sure you've seen it a couple times here. Now going back where we were, I gave you those two. I said we measured things as either like latitude and longitude on the Earth. Sort of, you know, you can specify exactly. I can tell you something's in the state of Pennsylvania or I can say you it's, it's latitude, you know, 41 degrees and longitude 78 degrees and I can narrow it down exactly. Same thing we do on the sky. Instead of latitude, which is north and south of the equator, on the celestial sphere, we use what we call declination. So declination just tells you, the declination of a star tells you how far it is above or below the celestial equator. Positive if it's above, negative if it's below. So the comet that Comet Lovejoy that just happened to pass close to the sun and is back invisible now from, from Earth has a very negative declination. It's way down towards the south celestial pole. 
So we can't see it up here. We never see anything down there because the Earth's in the way. If we had a nice clear Earth or you know, dig right, through, dig right through the Earth, we could see it. But we don't have that advantage. If you happen to be down in South America, Africa, Southern Africa, Australia, then you can see it very easily. So declination just tells you how far above or below the celestial equator you are. And that's measured in degrees. Right ascension, astronomers don't like to do anything simple, isn't measured in degrees. Right? We measure in degrees. Latitude and longitude are both in degrees, so it's easy. Well, astronomers can't do it simply. You'll, you'll find that out. Luckily, you don't do the measurements. You just got, I'm just giving you the basics to learn the, learn the details, to learn the basics of it. Right ascension is measured in hours, minutes, and seconds from wherever the sun happens to be at the vernal equinox. So there's a position on the sky. That's where the sun is on the first day of spring. And we measure around the sky from there. Now, we have to pick some point to measure, you know, to, to measure things like right ascension or longitude from. We have to determine a point where we're going to start making the measurements. The equator is a very easy one when we're doing latitude. The equator has a very definite point. When you're going around this way, there's no preferred point. You have to pick one out. And the one that has been defined on Earth for longitude is the Greenwich Meridian. That's where we just say longitude is zero, and everybody has to agree that's where we're measuring everything from. That wasn't the case several hundred years ago. You know, everyone had their own uh, starting point for measuring longitude. You know, one went through London, one went through the French's, went through Paris. You know, and all you know, each the Spanish would go through Madrid. You know, everyone would pick their their area. So hundreds of years ago there was one and it led to confusions in being able to travel between things because if they're at different locations then the longitudes are going to change. Well astronomers did the same thing that the governments at the time did. They picked one. They settled on we're going to use the Greenwich Meridian going through an observatory in England as the zero location. Astronomers picked out the position of the sun on the first day of spring. And that's just a zero point to measure. And you measure everything from that. It's measured in hours, minutes, and seconds. So instead of, being, instead of going from zero to 360 degrees or plus and minus 180 degrees, it goes from zero to 24 hours. So when you talk about positions of a star, you might say it's at a declination of positive 13 and a half degrees and a right ascension of five hours and 46 minutes. Again, you don't need to do the calculations with these. I'm just trying to give you the basic idea of how we go ahead and get those and use those numbers. They're very similar to, again, what we use. Declination is just like latitude, and right ascension is just like. So declination like latitude, right ascension like longitude. Question, sir? Yes? So if you were saying on the example you just said, mm -hmm. that's the distance from the sun, right? The, the hours you said, 5.6, that's how far we from the sun and so that would be from the sun's position where the sun would be the first day of spring. It's a fixed position on the sky. The sun, because the sun will move around, the, will move around the celestial sphere. But at the first day of spring, it's in a specific point, and that's where we use our zero point. We could have used the first day of summer. Could have used the first day of autumn. Could have used January 18th. You know, there's no specific reason you had to pick any, any specific point. We just picked one that happened to be picked. You could pick any specific point on the, on the sky. Okay, so what is the Earth doing? 
said everything looks like everything else is moving, but the Earth is actually Earth is what's actually doing the moving, or some of the moving. Everything's actually moving. You know, the Earth's moving around the Sun. The Sun's moving around the galaxy. The galaxy's moving around other galaxies. So everything's in a nice, big, complicated motion. Let's step back and look at the most basic one. We're going to ignore for now the Sun's just staying still. So ignore for the fact that the Sun is moving because we're all moving with it, and that really doesn't change anything. But the most obvious motion that we see in the Sun and the Earth is the daily motion, right? Sun rises in the east and sets in the west every day, except when it's cloudy when we don't see it, but it, do, it still does it. And that takes 24 hours, right? Days 24 hours, and hours long, or 23 hours and 56 minutes. You've heard that one too? Anyone heard 23 hours and 56 minutes? Yeah, a few of you? Okay. The day that we use is actually 24 hours long. That is relative to the sun, and the solar day is what we use. So that, that is actually 24 hours long. What is different is the day relative to the stars. Relative to the stars, the Earth rotates in 23 hours and 56 minutes. So that's what this little diagram is trying to show you here. Here's a position, start with point A at the bottom, but we have the sun right here, and there's where the Earth is, and there's some point on the Earth where the sun is directly overhead. Okay? Then we let the Earth rotate once, so the Earth is spinning. And 23 hours and 56 minutes later, that same, air, same point is directly overhead again, it's not, but it's not, it hasn't pointed to the sun. Relative to the stars, this arrow is in exactly the same position it was but not relative to the Sun. Why? Because the Earth hasn't stayed in the same spot. The Earth is, is orbiting around the Sun. So instead of the Earth staying here, the Earth would have been here if it hadn't moved at all, if it was just staying still. It's actually moved a little bit. About 1 365th of the way around the Sun, one day's worth of its orbit of a, of a year. It's moved a little bit, about one degree. So it takes that a little bit more time each day to come back and get the sun directly overhead, get the sun back to the same spot. So we have what we call a solar day. That's what we use. That's you know, 24 hours. That's correct. That's what we use every day. And that is correct. That's how long it takes to get back to the sun being in the same position. So at noon, 1.15 right now for us is noon, but you know, at noon, 24 hours later is noon again. The sun has come up. But the Earth has actually rotated a little bit more than a full turn. Because it not only went from here to here, that's one full turn rotated, it's actually had to go a little bit more to get the Sun back. So this is 23 hours and 56 minutes. That's 24 hours. And that's what it takes to get the Sun back. So our day is relative to the Sun. That's what we use, and that's what we use on the Earth. Relative to astronomy, we use what we call the sidereal day which is relative to the stars. That's what we call the sidereal day is relative to the stars. So two different days. Let's see, two different days, two different months, couple different years, all sorts of different ones. But again, the 24 hours is not wrong. It does take the Earth 23 hours and 50 minutes, 56 minutes to spin on its axis once. But in terms of the time that we use, we, do, we measure everything relative to the sun, not relative to the stars. If we kept time by the stars, then our day would be 23 hours and 56 minutes long. And then you'd have real fun trying to do solar observations because it would change by four minutes every day when you had to, to make your observations. So it would really be a mess. 
Now that's one motion that we see. So that's an easy one. You see that. One you don't see quite as easily is the yearly motion of the sun, of the, sun, of the Earth around the sun. Although you may notice if you've ever gone out and looked at the constellations. I mentioned that Orion is nicely visible right now, if you look in the evening. Come back in six months, you won't see it. It's not there, it's gone. Didn't go any place, it's still exactly where it's always been, but now the sun's, the sun's in the way. And that's what we're looking at here. This is what constellations we see depends on what time of year it is. So in December, in January, right in here, we prominently see constellations like Gemini, Cancer, are very visible. Leo, visible from you know, this semester. These will be the constellations that would be visible at this point. Some of the constellations will be visible. But we're not going to see things like Aquarius and Capricornus. Why not? Because if we're right here, we can see them, but you got to look through the sun. Kind of hard to look through the sun and see them, right? Can't really look through the sun to find, to find them. Now you probably recognize these constellations, right? Everybody, everybody recognizes all these 12 constellations, right? The constellations of the zodiac? Okay. So that's actually, they're actually not the most prominent constellations in the, of the 88. They're not some of the most prominent constellations. They're only important. In fact, some of them are very faint. Uh, Cancer is a very, very faint constellation. Aries is extremely faint. Pisces, Aquarius. Libra, a number of them do not have a lot of big prominent stars. They're only interesting because they happen to be, and you hear about them because they happen to be where the sun would travel through. So if we look at the sun, the sun would appear to travel through these constellations. And going back then to astrology, that's where you know your sun sign, all that comes in. You know, where was the sun on the day you were born? Of course, if you actually go and figure it out, you find out you're about a month off right now. They're all about one month off. You know, because things have changed. The coordinates have changed over the course of hundreds of years since the system was developed. So, you know, instead of being in one constellation, you're in another con you're actually in another constellation. The name of this path, we call this the ecliptic. The ecliptic is just the path of the sun through the sky. Now again, that's not the sun moving, that's us moving around the sun. But we don't see us as moving, we still see us as still, so we go back and look at it. And again, we see the sun in different areas. So when we're here in September, the sun is completely blocking out some of these constellations. They'd be visible if you can get rid of the sun. So if you can knock out the sun there, then you'd, be, then you'd be looking, you'd be able to see those constellations all year round. But that's why we consider some constellations like Orion is a winter constellation. You can see it right now. Try to look for it in July and August, and you're not going to find it very well. Well, actually, yeah, by the time you get to September, you can see it if you want to get up at like four or five in the morning, you can see it real well. But evening, in terms of seeing it in the evening, you're not going to see, you're not going to see it at all here. So those are the 12, 12 of the 88 constellations. We call them the constellations of the zodiac. And again, those are just the ones that the sun happens to pass through, the planets happen to pass through, all this over the course of a year. Now the ecliptic, again, that's the Earth's path. So you can look at it either way, depending on how much is easier for you. It's either the Earth's path, which is correct, it's the Earth's path around the sun if you were standing on the sun. But if you're standing on the Earth, you see the sun's motion reflected, and it's therefore the path of the sun on the sky. So what we see from the Earth, we see that. Now some of these terms you may have heard of, 
23 and a half degrees. You probably heard that. That's the Earth's tilt. So the Earth is actually tilted on its axis. Instead of pointing, you know, if it's spinning like a top, instead of going straight up and down, it's actually tilted at about a 23 degree angle. That's what gives us our seasons. If we weren't tilted, we wouldn't have seasons. You wouldn't have summer or winter. You'd have one nice big autumn-like season all year round. It's only because we're tilted closer to the, we're tilted towards the sun. And when we're tilted towards the sun, for example in summer, we get a lot more sunlight, a lot more direct sunlight, concentrated in a very small area, and it heats everything up. When we're in the winter, right here in the northern hemisphere, we're tilted away from the sun, and therefore the light gets spread out over a much larger area, so that same amount of energy from the sun, instead of heating this little small area, now has to try to heat a much bigger area. And what else changes? What's the day, what are the daylights, days like now? Real short, right? Sun rises late and it sets early. So the sun isn't up for very long to heat things either. So those two combinations together is what causes the seasons. Now one of the things that a lot of people try to think of the seasons is you think it's being closer to the sun or further away. It's actually the opposite. We are actually closest to the sun in January. So the Earth does have an orbit that takes it a little bit closer and a little bit further away. It's not a big difference. But actually it's the beginning of January. So right now we're at about our closest to the sun. It was a couple weeks ago, but right, right around now, we're about our closest to the sun. Come the beginning of July, we'll be the furthest away from the sun. It's not a big difference, and so it doesn't really affect the seasons in terms of being a little bit closer or a little further away, although it would tend to enhance and make our winters a, little, a tiny bit milder in the northern hemisphere and make our, our summers a little bit milder and it, the opposite in the southern hemisphere. Now one thing to show that the distances does, isn't what makes a difference in terms of doing the seasons is if that were the case, if it was just the distance from the Earth to the Sun that told us whether it was going to be summer or winter, then it would be summer, it would be winter here right now, but it would also be winter down in Australia, right? Because we'd be, we'd be further away, well we're further away from the, say we're closer to the Sun right now, so it should be summer all over. And it's not the case. The case is that they are tilted differently so when we're tilted in one direction, it gives us summer in the northern part of the Earth, winter in the lower part, and the opposite six months later. When we're tilted away from the sun, we get our colder time, and the southern hemisphere gets the warmer time. Now, there are a couple points there I've mentioned that we'll look at, we'll talk about briefly. And we mentioned the vernal equinox. There it is right there. Vernal equinox is the first day of spring. And the first day of spring, that's just when the sun happens to cross that celestial equator that we looked at before. So the sun happens to cross it the first day of spring. It goes from the southern part of the sky to the northern part of the sky and signals the beginning of, this beginning of spring. Autumnal equinox is just the opposite. At the autumnal equinox, the beginning of fall, the sun has just crossed the equator going downward and it's going from the northern part of the sky to the southern part of the sky. Now we're doing solar observations this time. You guys are taking this in the spring. So you'll actually, if you keep making observations, and you make an observation right around March 21st, whenever the first day of spring happens to be, and we do all the calculations, 
that's when you should get a declination where the sun is above or below the celestial equator of zero. Should be right about zero around the 21st. So giving you a number there to look for when you take your, when you take your measurements. That means that right now, if you're doing the calculation, of course I said you don't have to do the calculation, so don't worry about that, but if you're, if you're comfortable with it and you want to go ahead and look at them, if you're doing your calculations now and you go through to the declination, you should be getting a negative number. You should be getting something negative when you do the whole calculation. Again, you don't have to worry about that. If you want to go through them, I'll be happy to look at them with, look at them with you. The other thing that we have, those are two points, two of the four key points. The other two are the winter and summer solstices. Solstice just essentially means the sun stops. So the summer sun solstice means the sun, the, the sun went to its highest point in the sky. It got as high as it's possibly going to. So it stopped rising and it stopped and it's starting to go down lower in the sky. And that of course is the first day, the beginning of summer in June. And the winter solstice, which we just passed less than a month ago, would be the sun's lowest point in the sky. So it would, get, it would be as far below the celestial equator as it ever will for that year. And then it will start going up. So even though we're you know, still in the depths of winter right now, the sun's on its way up. It's actually getting higher and higher in the sky every single day. And again, if you're making your measurements, you should notice, if you make them at the same time, you should see your shadows getting a little bit shorter each day. So you make your observations, you know, if you make them one. Now that doesn't mean every one. If you make two observations two days apart, you know, your measurement errors or a couple of minutes can make a, make a little bit of a difference. But in general, if your shadows are getting longer and longer right now, something's really, something really is wrong is going on. So that's a little bit about the seasons and again, the point, the, the, some of the points that we have here. Now what we have, oops, I knew I missed one previous. Let me go back one for a second. The other thing that we have is that the year, the year is the time to go from one vernal equinox to the next. So again, astronomers have picked up on this vernal equinox as being our key point. So one year to one year is the tropical year. Said you were going to see more than one year too. So we had two different days already. We had the solar day, which is what we use, and you have the sidereal day relative to the stars. The tropical year is typically what we use. That's what you're used to, 365.65 and a quarter, plus or minus a little bit, days. That's why we got a leap year. That's why we got an extra day in February this year. But there's another type of year that actually, that actually changes things because the position of that vernal equinox doesn't stay the same on the sky. You know, on the Earth, essentially, the position of the Greenwich Meridian stays the same. It doesn't change. But the position on the sky is slowly changing. And that's changing due to what we call precession. Now, you've probably seen this if you've ever watched a top spin. Right? It doesn't just spin straight up and down. It kind of wobbles around. And it goes, it's spinning very, very quickly around. And it kind of wobbles in a slow, poor, slow position around and points in different areas as it goes. So you've probably seen that kind of thing. Well, guess what? The Earth's doing the same thing. Not near as fast as the top is going, but the Earth actually has a wobble to it. So the Earth's axis is pointing here right now, but it's actually wobbling in a big circle on the sky. It takes 26,000 years to go, th go through that complete circle. Quite a while. But that changes, for example, what this map is showing is where the North Celestial Pole will point on the, on the sky. So here we are right about now, very close to Polaris. So we actually happen to be close to a pole star. 
2,000 years ago, there was no star near the pole. So it's just a happy coincidence that we happen to have a star relatively close to the pole right now. You can see that for most of the cycle, look at this whole big cycle, whole big section here. Until you get up to this little one where you're pretty close to a real bright star, there's a whole big area there where there's almost nothing near the pole. So again, it would make it difficult to actually identify the pole. The pole. There's not actually a star at the pole, there just happens to be a star located in that general direction right now. A thousand years from now, there'll be nothing there. And then we'll come up to a couple other stars that'll get relatively close. That's all due to this precession. The Earth's position is slow, the direction the Earth's pole is pointing slowly changes over time. And that's going to affect our year because it's going to take a little bit different time for the Earth to exactly get back to where it was relative to the stars versus relative to the Sun. So if we look at it, it takes the Earth one sidereal year to go around the Sun. That would be how long it really takes to orbit, sort of like that 23 hours and 56 minutes that it takes the Sun to go, the Earth to go, Earth to orbit to rotate once. Get my word straight this time. All right. And there's also a tropical, it's what we call the tropical year, is what we use. So the tropical year goes by the goes more by the seasons. That's what we use. So we follow the tropical year. That means that July and August will always be summer. So July and August will be summer. We're following the seasons in this. We're following the sun. The sidereal year uses the constellations. So the constellations, because of that wobble, the constellations that we see at a time of year are slowly changing. Not drastically, you're not going to notice it in your lifetime. But, but over many hundreds of years, you know, 13,000 years from now, I just told, told you you can't see Orion in July and August, right? Well, 13,000 years from now you will be able to. Then there'll be, the Orion will be up there because we'll have gone halfway around that pole and now everything will be switched. But it's a very slow effect. But it does have the other issue that I mentioned with the astrology, right? The signs of the zodiac. They're all slowly changing. All the positions of the constellations are slowly changing because of this precession. So when the zodiac was put together, was it about 14... 1400 years or so ago. That's a big chunk of this. We've moved pretty significant, a pretty big chunk away around. You know, our coordinates have changed a lot in 1400 years. So now it turns out about one. That's about one twelfth. Everybody's about one constellation off. So if you actually go and look where you know where the sun was on the day you were born, you're more than likely going to find out that it isn't in the constellation that you're normally looking up in for your horoscope. You're normally going to find out you're, you're one off. And that's all because of this precession. So you can, you can blame it on precession. And that's just slowly changing the coordinate systems. Now how about the moon? We've got two months, two, essentially two months now to talk about. The moon takes about 29 and a half days to go through its cycle of phases. That's what we see when we look at it. Right? We watch the moon, you see a full moon. You come back about 29 and a half days later, it'll be full moon again. Or you see first quarter moon, you're nice and nice in the evening sky. You see a, you know, the moon half illuminated, what we call first quarter up here at the 
or sorry, down here at the bottom, first quarter. So you see first quarter moon, 29 and a half days later you see that again. That's how long it takes the moon to go through its cycle of phases. That's not how long it takes the moon to orbit around the Earth once. Because the same thing is happening. The whole system is moving. So really, the moon goes around the Earth once every 27.3 days. 27.3 days. That's how long it takes the moon to go around the Earth once. Back to where it started. But because the whole system, the Earth and the moon, has moved now not just one day's worth, but one month's worth around the sun. We've moved a lot further because it takes the moon 23, 27 days to go around once. The Earth has had a lot more time to move. It takes the moon over two days to catch back up to where the sun now is from the Earth's point of view. So we go through and we see that. So we're going to see two different days. We see a synodic month. Synodic month relative to the sun. So relative to the sun it takes the moon 29 and a half days to go through its phases. The sidereal month is 27 days, a little over 27 days. That's just how long it takes. If you could just look at the Earth and the moon yeah, system all alone, ignore everything else, then you would see that and that would be about two days shorter. The phases of the moon that we see are simply due to the moon, different parts of the moon being illuminated. So half the moon is always illuminated as seen from the, as, as by the sun, so half the moon is always illuminated. But at some points, as the moon goes around the Earth, in between the Earth and the sun, if it passes in the direction of the Earth of the sun, the illuminated side is going to be the back side. So you're not going to see anything. So this whole, so it's half the moon is still illuminated, but you can't see that, right? You can't see that from the Earth. So Sometimes the terminology is used dark side of the moon. It's not really a dark side. It really is the far side of the moon. It's always far away from us. That side does never point towards the Earth. We'll come back and talk about that a little in a later chapter. But half of it is always illuminated. And depending on its positioning, we can see either just a little bit of that illumination, more, more, or when it's on the other side of the Earth, we may see all of it. Now, when we do, we'll mention eclipses here in just a minute. If you happen to be, we had a nice lunar eclipse last month, if you happen to be on the west coast of the United States. Didn't make it over to this. Everything set before it got over to us this time, so we still got a few years to wait before a good one. But at this point, this is also the point where you can get the eclipses. At a full moon is when you'll get, when you'll get an eclipse, because the moon has the opportunity to pass through the shadow of the Earth. Now it doesn't always because of this. If you see here, the moon's orbit is kind of not exactly in line. It's a little bit up or down. So depending on exactly where the moon happens to be positioned when the eclipse occurs, most of the time the moon passes well above or below the Earth's shadow and we never see anything. Once in a while, once or twice a year, it'll actually pass through that shadow and get blotted out by the, by the Earth's shadow. So it'll get dark. So the moon will slowly disappear. It'll be a nice full moon and it'll slowly disappear. If you've ever had the chance to see a lunar eclipse, I think there's a good one coming up in two or three years from now. There's a good one that actually will be visible from the eastern part of the U.S. We're sort of in a little eclipse drought for this part of the country right, country right now. But here, I'll come back to eclipses in just a minute. But again, just a good, quick, basic overview of phases. 
we have what we call full moon. Start there. That's the one everybody's heard of, right? Full moon you've heard of. The opposite, when you don't see anything, we call it new moon. So essentially that's considered the moon going through its cycle and starting over. So it's a new moon. In between, the other one you often see, you see the crescent phase of the moon, which is if it's less than half illuminated. So we see less than half of the illuminated surface. That's considered a crescent phase. That can be an extremely little crescent or a very thick crescent, just depending on the exact timing when you're looking at it. If it's very close to new moon, you're going to see a thinner crescent and it's slowly going to get bigger and bigger over the coming days. So if you ever see, go out and see, you know, see one evening, see a nice thin crescent moon as the sun is set, after the sun is setting, go back a day or two later. Watch the moon. You'll see it actually get bigger and bigger and within a week you'll be up to first quarter. First quarter is half the moon. We see half of the moon's surface illuminated, half of what we see is illuminated. And then the other one we have this side is actually the gibbous phase. So we have crescent, quarter, first and third quarter, gibbous, G-I-B-B-O-U-S, I didn't put that up on there, and then full. So those are just the different phases and I do, I suggest you go, go out and look as you have clear nights, you know, or look from your window right now if you don't want to get out and get too cold, it's a little, it's a little chilly out there at times. And watch, you know, just watch it over the course of a few days and you'll see, you can very easily see it change from one to the other from night to night. Now eclipses, I mentioned, let's come back to eclipses here. First eclipse to mention is a lunar eclipse. This is the one that occurred in December. So again, if you happen to be out in California in December, you would have been able to see this. California, Colorado, once you got too much further east, got to the east part, eastern part or towards the Mississippi, you really didn't see anything. But what happens here is you have the light from the sun and just like anything else, the, the earth, the big solid object is going to block some of that light and form a shadow. If the moon's orbit happens to be just right that it moves into the shadow, then it's going to darken. It's going to start to disappear and you'd wa if you watched a lunar eclipse, you'll see a little bite taken out of the moon, just a little tiny bit and it'll slowly get bigger and bigger over the course of about an hour. And then at what we call total lunar eclipse, when it's completely in the shadow, which we call a total eclipse, it'll be very dark and it'll actually the moon will look a deep red. So the moon doesn't quite disappear. If the earth had no atmosphere, the moon would be gone. You wouldn't see the moon. It would disappear and would be gone for an hour. It would come back. It wouldn't be gone forever. But because it has because we have an atmosphere, remember what I just talked about with that picture of the day in red light? Well, red light gets bent through the atmosphere and actually gets bent into the shadow. So instead of this shadow being completely dark, it's actually got red light going into it. So some of that red light gets bent through, it kind of gets focused. You can almost think of the Earth's atmosphere as a little lens that just kind of focuses the light into there, focuses the red light in. So put some red light in there. So if you actually see a moon in total eclipse, it doesn't disappear, it actually looks red. So it'll actually look this very deep red color. So a lunar eclipse occurs again, you've got the Earth and the moon passes into its shadow. And let's see, did I mention everything? Yeah, total eclipse. Partial eclipse is if only part of it goes into the shadow. So if it only goes and only part of it is the eclipse begins or ends, you might only get part of the moon in the Earth's shadow. 
And depending on the exact orientation, you can sometimes get just a partial lunar eclipse where only part of the moon will disappear. And we get the same thing with the sun. A solar eclipse is when the moon is between the Earth and the sun. So pictures here are the couple different ideas that we, couple different that we can get here. You have the sun, the moon, and you have the moon casting a shadow onto the Earth. Now, difference between the Earth and the moon. The moon doesn't have an atmosphere. So there's no bending of light around it. It simply blocks out everything and you get this completely dark shadow over the face of the Earth. And here's an example right here. That's actually a picture. That's not a cloud. That's actually the shadow of the moon on the Earth. So if you have the chance to see a solar eclipse, much rarer, you actually will see, you would see the sun slowly disappear. So you'd see the, as the moon passed in front of the sun, you'd see a little bit of the sun taken out, a little chunk like this. And that would slowly get bigger and bigger as the moon moved over, if you were at the area of total eclipse. And eventually, the moon would, get, the moon would completely block out the sun. Completely. It would get dark. It would be, you know, could be two in, it could be one or two in the afternoon, it will get dark like nighttime. You're blocking out all the light from the sun. I know it's showing a little halo around there. I'll mention that in a second. But the sun, you're completely blocking out the sunlight. So it would get dark for, depending on the length of the eclipse, could be a couple minutes up to about seven or eight minutes. And it would get completely dark. So you can imagine why thousands of years ago eclipses could be a terrifying thing. You know, we didn't understand them. Where'd the, where'd the sun go? Is it coming back? You know? And especially the fact that they are so rare. You know, we don't see. Anybody ever had the chance to see a solar eclipse? Okay. I've seen pictures. I haven't seen, I've seen partial solar eclipses. I've never seen a total solar eclipse. So, I mean, it's not that typically the typical person gets to see one in their lifetime. So, it, that's, you can understand why it, is such, why it was such a scary thing. The sun just disappeared. You know, something's eating the sun. It's, to go, it's going away. And the other interesting thing is to talk about how bright the sun is. The sun is so bright that even with a big chunk taken out of it, you don't notice the difference. So if you don't look up, you won't happen to look up at it, and you know, if a partial eclipse was going on right now and it was nice and sunny out there, and you didn't happen to look up at the sun, you wouldn't notice it. You don't notice it getting dark until you block about 90% of the sun. You've got to block 90 plus percent for it actually to start to look dark. But it will. You know, the crickets will start chirping. It'll get dark. If you've got automatic street lights, they start coming on. Your automated lights will all start coming on. It will be nighttime for five minutes, five, six minutes in the middle of the day. So it is. If you ever get the opportunity, and I'll show you in a minute, there's actually a couple coming up in the next 10, 12 years <laughs> where you have a chance in this part of the country. Now, if you're going elsewhere, of course, you have more opportunities to actually see a solar eclipse. But it, it is an amazing, I mean, I've seen pictures and it is an amazing sight. I mentioned this halo around it. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we actually get to our chapter on the sun. But the halo around this is actually what we call the corona of the sun. The corona is the sun's atmosphere. We don't see it most of the time. It's a very hot outer atmosphere of the sun, well beyond what the visible disk. But it's much fainter than the rest of it. So it gets washed out. Usually you've got the sun there, it gets completely washed out and we can't study it. The times astronomers can study that is when the moon actually has gotten in the way and blocked out that disk of the sun, blocked out the real bright sun, and allowed us to see the corona. So that shows a partial eclipse and a total eclipse of the sun. The other one we can get 
And this only this doesn't happen for a lunar eclipse. Lunar eclipse can do both of these. Lunar eclipse can't do this one. This is only a solar eclipse. And it's what we call an annular eclipse of a sun. What you get if you get to see an annular eclipse is the moon passes right in front of the sun, but it doesn't quite block it all out. So you actually have the moon there, and if you can see here, there's a ring of sun left around it. Now why does it do that sometimes and not all the time? Why, doesn't it, why don't we always see that? Why does it sometimes block it out? Well, remember I told you the Earth is sometimes closer to the sun, sometimes further away? You know, we're closer to the sun right now than we will be in July. It's only a little bit, you know, a few, few miles, but it's not, it's a good enough difference. The moon does the same thing. Sometimes the moon is a little bit closer to the Earth, and sometimes it's a little bit further away. If something's closer to you, it looks a little bigger, right? So if I start walking up the steps, I look a little bit bigger than I did when I walked to the other side of the table. The sun didn't change, so if you look at it and you have the moon further away from you, the moon might actually look a little bit smaller than the sun, so it never quite blocks it. Or if the moon is closer to you, the moon might actually be a little bit bigger than the sun and block it out entirely. It just depends on the relative position of the moon at the time of the eclipse as well. So you'll actually see some that are actually visible as what we call an annular, annular eclipse, which means that the sun was a little bit bigger than the moon, and we were able to see and it didn't quite, couldn't quite block out the entire sun. So the moon might have been a little bit further away, we might have been a little bit uh, closer to the sun. Combination of those two would have made a difference in the sizes. Now it's an interesting coincidence on these that the sun and the moon for us actually happen to be the same size. If they weren't that close to the same apparent size in the sky, eclipses would also be no big deal. Right? The moon looked like a tiny little point in the sky and just passed in front of the sun once in a while. It might be, well, you know, interesting moons passing in front of the sun. Big deal, right? It's not blocking out everything. But because they happen to be almost exactly the same size, it just blocks it out. And it makes it a rarer event. If the moon were gigantic, say the moon were ten times bigger than the sun in the sky. imply block it out every month and everybody would be used to it. Well, yeah, that happened, you know, last year or it happened ten years ago and twenty years ago and, you know, it was no big deal. So it's sort of a coincidence that everything, these two happen to be exactly the same size, you know, very, so very close, that allows us to get the different types of eclipses and also makes them a much more interesting, interesting sight. So when we look at the eclipses, again, a solar eclipse, and this is the same as when we talked about the Earth, the lunar eclipses, a solar eclipse is partial if only a part of the sun is blocked. Makes sense, right? Partial, part of the sun's blocked, or total when it's all blocked. Annular means the sun was too far away. The moon was too far away, sorry. The moon was too far away. So the moon is a little bit further away in its orbit from us. And therefore, we can't quite block, I can't quite block out the disk of the sun. It's just too far away to just too far away to do it. Now eclipses, we don't get them every month. And I mentioned this, I referred to this earlier, but let's look at it again. And this shows it a little bit better, this picture. We have the sun. We have the Earth at different positions. And we have the moon. So the eclipses can only occur, first of all, a solar eclipse only occurs at new moon. That's when this, the moon is passing towards the direction of the sun. A lunar eclipse can only occur at full moon. Okay, when you have, so the orientation is either sun, moon, earth, or sun, for, for, for a solar eclipse, sun, moon, earth, or for a lunar eclipse, sun, earth, moon. 
but they're not always lined up. And that's what the diagram is showing here, is that sometimes you get everything nicely lined up. See how the orbit is tilted? Well, at one point it actually is going to line up. So there's that one line. So if eclipses happen to occur near that position, then we get an eclipse. So not only do you have to have the Earth in the right position, the Earth and the Moon in the right position here, but you also have to have the right phase of the Moon. Because if this occurs, you know, but, but it's quarter Moon, it's way over, Moon's way over here, no eclipse. So you have a number of things, all these things have to work just right to see an eclipse. And everything has to be lined up exactly. Because they're not in the same plane, if they were in the same plane, then we'd get eclipses much more often. If the Moon was not tilted even as much, if it was tilted much less, we'd get eclipses much more often. But we don't get the eclipses because of this tilt. The Moon's orbit is tilted relative to the Earth. So you've got this tilt. So sometimes, well, here's the new Moon. The Moon's casting its shadow. It didn't stop casting its shadow. But the shadow falls below the Earth. It doesn't actually touch the Earth. If it never touches the Earth, we're not going to see it. Not unless you go take a spaceship out there and go try. You can go travel into the orbit of the, into the shadow of the moon and see it. And people actually, not, not in this case, but people actually do that with eclipses on the Earth. If you ever look up when there is solar eclipses, you look up in one of the astronomy mag, you'll see this cruise, you know, to the middle of the Pacific in, on some date to see the solar eclipse. So you can actually take an eclipse cruise and pay, you know, a couple thousand dollars to go see, go see the eclipse. And people do that as well. So you, you can go travel to see the eclipses as well. Now eclipses are relatively rare. These are the eclipses, not all of them, but these are most of the solar eclipses for about 20 years. So you can, you can see why they're relatively rare. You don't see them, you don't get one every year. And you can see that for us here, there's two crossing the U.S. in this, in this time period. Now the red lines are the areas where you would see a total eclipse. So that's where if you were happen to be located there, you would actually see the sun completely blocked out. If you're on a path around that, you'd actually see a partial eclipse. So actually both of these, while none of them passes right through Harrisburg, we'd be down over there someplace, you'd actually, you would see a partial eclipse on these two days. So you can hope for a nice clear day on August 21st of 2017, and the next one is April 8th of 2024. So you got what, five years and nine years to, to wait. Those will be the next ones there. But again, they do do things like if you really want to go see one, you, you can pay and go see an eclipse cruise. And here's one coming up this year, November 13th. Question, sir? I was about to ask you if you could go back a couple more slides because there was a note that was a note comment. Give me just, let me finish up and I can go back to it at the end real quick. So what you have, so you, you can go see that eclipse. There's some down, here's one down in Antarctica in 2021. But those, you can see how relatively rare they are. I mean, most of the area in 20 years, most of the area of the globe will not see an eclipse. How about Russia? That's that gigantic country, right? Look at that. One little eclipse up in northern Siberia is all in that 20, that's a big country too. So they're not a very common effect, not a very common event. In fact, we're kind of lucky here that we're getting two very nice ones. I mean, here's one going up through Looks like it's going up through like Indiana and just right over the Great Lakes, right over Erie and Ontario. So that should be a relatively nice one for us here coming up in nine years. So if you're still in this area in nine years or if you're going that direction, that's one you can actually, you know, you can travel relatively easy if you want to get closer to the actual total eclipse path. Then you just got to hope for clear weather. Eclipse isn't going to wait for you. You know, if it decides to rain that day where you are, you're here sort of out of luck too. Okay. 
Let me see where we're... Okay, let me do the distances and I'll finish up. I've got two slides on distance, I think, and then we'll finish up there and then finish this so we won't be too far behind since this was last week's material. First of all, this is just a quick measure of how, one way of measuring distances. You don't need to worry about the calculation. In fact, it's sort of what you're going to be doing eventually for the solar ones. You're going to do something quite similar to this. And in fact, you're making the measurements right now. But this is one way to determine distances to something. You're doing a different kind of measurement, but similar calculation. But one way to determine distances to something that you can't see is to use trigonometry. So you look at this tree here. You find out it's okay. It's straight across at this point, and you get another observer here. <coughs> observes it to be at some angle. If you know this angle, well, you end up knowing all the angles. You know we can measure how far apart these two are. You can calculate what this size is without actually going across the river. So you don't have to run your big measuring tape across the river to go see it. All you need to do is, you know, calculate it. You can measure you can measure the distance to that tree from one side of the river. Now we can do that same thing with the stars. We can look at a star from two different positions and use this to measure its distance. And what we do is called parallax. So Example here is, say, for example, you look from a telescope on one side of the Earth and you look at this object and you look at a telescope on the other side of the Earth and look at the same object. Okay, well, we know how big the Earth is. We can calculate that. So we know how far apart these two are. And we can measure the angles, how much that object seems to change its position. And we can determine how far away it is. So that's one way to determine distances to objects in space. This doesn't work for stars because it's not big enough. Remember I told you those angles that I said we had to measure were incredibly small? Well, they're so small that you wouldn't even be able to measure them on this kind of baseline. That star was so far away that we would not be able to measure it. What we have to do is actually go a step further and use the biggest baseline we can possibly get. You think the size of the Earth is as big as we can get, right? How can we get bigger than the size of the Earth? Well, the Earth is moving. So if we wait six months from right now, you know, we're here, sun's here, six months later, we're way over here. Without doing anything, six months later, we've moved a big chunk of the way. And that's an even bigger baseline. Even with that, that angle is less than that one second of arc. So took that degree, divided it into 60, took each of those, divided them into 60, we're still less than one second of arc, even using that biggest baseline. And that's as big as we can possibly get unless you want to go to another planet. Go do it on Mars. Go do it on you know, one of the moons of Jupiter. You could go further away. So I am going to finish up there and then I will go back. There's a little bit to come. I think it's, yes, I have a little bit on the scientific method to talk about next time to finish up this chapter. So we're about where we're, about where we need to be and then we will start on chapter one. The chapter one slides are up there now so you can get to those if you need them. Question? Let's make it Tuesday. You're correct. Thank you. I was just switching to make it the next week, but let me give you through. If you want to turn it in class, Tuesday would be fine. You can email it as well. Yes, you're right. Thank you. I was just doing that because originally I had it due on Friday, but I've only gotten through chapter one. I was chapter zero, and I'll get into chapter one on Thursday, but I probably won't finish it, so I'd rather have you have the little bit of extra time. Okay. Let me stop.